I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. We're going through the Gospel of John, and we started, uh, uh, we covered chapter 13 last week. Uh, it's really kind of hard to, to take out chapter 14 by itself, or chapter 15 by itself, or chapter 16, or chapter 17 by itself, because it's all, it begins in chapter 13 at what we know of as the Last Supper event. John gives us a little bit different information than the other uh, three gospel writers. John is the last of the gospels to be written. Uh, it's written in 92, 93, 94 B.C. Uh, AD. Uh, so there's been about 60 years, roughly 60 years that has, has gone by since Jesus was raised from the dead. John's aware of the other gospels that are out there. He knows what uh, uh, detailed information have been, has already been written about in um, uh, con- in connection with the Last Supper and the events and, and so forth. So he doesn't cover the same ground. He talks more about the things that Jesus said during that time that they were together. And as a result, gives us a lot more information than, than any of the other, a lot more personal information to the disciples uh, than, uh, than any of the other gospel writers. Now, uh, to pick up the context, we can't just start in verse 1 and, and uh, without uh, backing up a little bit. Uh, the context is that Jesus has uh, prepared or had this, uh, God prepared this uh, last supper uh, for them. There was somebody that uh, the God uh, put on their heart to, to have it ready for them. They partook of it. They're there together. And Jesus, all of a sudden, in the middle of the, or at the beginning of the, uh, the last supper, uh, is troubled because of Judas' betrayal. And as a result, uh, he gets sorrowful. He begins to tell the others, uh, the 12, that, uh, uh, that uh, he is going to be betrayed. The other gospel writers tell us that they're all asking, including Judas, is it me, is it me, is it me? So apparently it wasn't something that Judas had uh, determined to do until that point in time. It wasn't something that he's been laying in wait and thinking, you know, well, when we get back to Jerusalem, that's when I'll get him type thing. And the disciples were so amazed, the, the biggest uh, surprise, perhaps, we should say of the the three years of Jesus ministry is that one of their own would betray him would betray Jesus none of them expected it so it's not like uh, I mean Judas has had some things stirring in his heart he's been stealing all along from the treasury but it's not like it's progressed to the point where where um, we read the gospels and we think why didn't they see it there was no way for them to see it 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 had not manifest yet so anyway they start asking questions John finally asked Jesus because he's sitting closest to him at the last supper he said, who is it? And Jesus said, it's the one that I give the special piece of bread to. And, and he did. And then he said to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And so Judas left. And then everything changes. The whole tone of the, the Last Supper changes because Jesus starts talking to him about being little children. He starts giving him personal information. He wouldn't do that while Judas was there. Now, he washed Judas' feet along with everybody else. And so he, he, didn't, uh, uh, he didn't exclude Judas from that opportunity but the bible tells us and on almost every gospel account it tells us that as soon as jesus gave that piece of bread to judas satan entered his heart so there was something about that event there was something about that that triggered not against judas's will but there was something about that that triggered the following through of the action now i don't know what that was but he has put himself progressively in a position for um uh to go over the edge you know it's an amazing thing because if you talk to people that have, uh, have done stupid things to change their lives, like ran off, uh, guys that ran off from their, their wife and their kids and, and lost their jobs or wound up uh, getting hooked on drugs or alcohol or something like that and destroys their career and, and that kind of stuff. If you talk to them, they never intended for that to happen. Nobody ever thought that when they started this affair, it would wind up blowing up everybody's life. 
Nobody ever thought when they started taking dr- the drinks in the, at, uh, uh, at lunchtime that it was going to lead them to alcoholism and, and cause them to, to self-destruct as far as their career is concerned. Nobody ever plans for it. It's one step at a time. The devil will always lead you into the wrong things one step at a time. And he'll always say, well, this, this, this one step won't hurt anything. Well, he's right. That one step might not hurt anything, but that one step will get you closer to the big step that will destroy everything. So apparently that's the way it works with Judas because even he didn't know according to the other gospel accounts. John doesn't tell us this, but um, I think it's loose where, where Judas even asked, Lord, is it me? And Jesus said, yeah, well, you said so. Meaning it's his will, not just coming on him against his will. So Jesus starts, uh, starts saying some things about going away. Notice in verse 31 of chapter 13, he said, now is the son of man, uh, when Judas was gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Then he starts talking to him and calling them little children. Here's something to, to pay attention to. And that is, Jesus is saying that his death will glorify God and bring him glory. In other words, there's something about the death of Jesus that he's trying to explain to the disciples. And I, I, I don't blame him for not understanding it. We probably wouldn't have either uh, unless we had the knowledge that we have now in hindsight looking back. But he's trying to explain to them, you're going to see God in my death. Now, they've seen God in his ministry. They've seen God in his miracles. They've seen God in his words and his teachings and his doctrine and stuff like that. Now he's saying, you're going to see God in my death. Well, that doesn't make anybody happy. That's not a real rip-roaring, encouraging thing. But he t- uh, then he speaks to them about a new commandment. Verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you. Verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where the, where the goest thou? Where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I go, you can't follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Now, what's he talking about? Where's he going? We know that he's talking about going, and we know that when he says a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, most, the most important thing that you need to know about the New Testament is the new commandment is love. The Ten Commandments are gone. The new commandment is the law of love. Peter's talking about where you're going. He doesn't ask him anything about the commandment of love. He doesn't say, wait a minute, now, now what about this love? Love like, we, like you loved us. Does that mean everybody? He's not asking questions about love. He says, where are you going? So you can see what's occupying their minds. They're thinking about one and only one thing, and that is Jesus said, I'm going somewhere and you can't follow me. Now Jesus says, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. What is he talking about? Folks, it could mean a number of things. Is he saying you can't follow me to the pit of hell to pay the price for spiritual death, sin and spiritual death? Well, that would certainly be true. What's he talking about? Is he talking about you can't follow me to the cross? Well, Peter was crucified. What's he talking about? He could be talking about a number of things, but he's talking about going to the Father and he says, you can't go with me on the first part, but you will join me later. That's an important key. Peter still doesn't get it. He doesn't understand there's a spiritual context. He doesn't understand that the death of Jesus is going to glorify God or provide a benefit for mankind. They're thinking Messiah equals king. That's the only thing they have ever been taught throughout their, their lives. The Messiah means Israel will be given, granted the kingdom back. In other words, we'll be able to defeat the Romans. They're thinking politics. Where are you going? That's all they're thinking. Jesus talks about going away. You can't see me. For, uh, after a little while, you won't be able to see me. And they're thinking, what? Wait a minute. How can you be a king if we don't see you? How can you take care of the things that we thought you were supposed to do as the Messiah? Because that's who we believe you are. If we can't see you. 
And then Peter speaks up and says, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. Jesus says, uh, Peter says, I'll even lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, before morning, you'll deny me three times. Now, verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's the context of chapter 14. They're thinking about one and only one thing, and that is Jesus is going away. Now, folks, what is Jesus facing? He's facing the penalty of the sin of mankind. He's facing spiritual death himself. The Bible says Jesus was the firstborn or the first begotten from the dead. That can't be physical. He was not the firstborn or the first one resurrected from the dead physically. He just resurrected Lazarus in chapter 10. Or chapter 11, I guess it is. So where it says Jesus is the first begotten from the dead, it cannot be talking about physical death. So if he's not the first begotten from physical death, what's he the first begotten from the dead in? There's only one other kind of death, and that's spiritual death. That means Jesus knows. They don't, but Jesus knows that he's going to die spiritually. He understands that there's a substitution that's going to take place. He understands that he has to die, take mankind's uh, death upon himself so that mankind can have his righteousness. He knows this. They don't. He's facing the punishment not on the cross, that's going to be bad enough. Not the beating in Pilate's court, that's going to be horrifying enough. He's facing the punishment of all of mankind's sins. He's facing the waves of the torment and the destruction of God. The destruction of God, not the devil. The destruction of God in the pit of hell. There has to be a payment. There has to be a legitimate, righteous payment for sin. God didn't just kind of say, well, okay, that's good enough. No, he poured out everything that justice required upon Jesus, upon his own son in the pit of hell. That's where he was for those three days. He's paying the price for sin. Jesus knows he's going to be facing that. That's why he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and sweats great drops of blood in agony over this thing. He's not worried about being beaten on his back. He's not worried about the few hours that he spends on the cross. He's worried about those three days in the belly of the earth, the heart of the earth, literally the the pit of hell, where the punishment of God is going to come upon him. The Bible says he was smitten and stricken of God, not smitten and stricken of the devil. This is God doing it to him. Why? Why would God do that to his only son? Because that's the only way he could make a place for you. Now, Jesus knows that he's facing that. The disciples don't have a clue. Most of the church today doesn't have a clue. But Jesus knows what he's facing. And what is the guy having to do? He's having to comfort them because they feel sad because he's going away. It's not like they're hugging him and saying, oh, Jesus, what can we do to strengthen you? What can we do to help you? We love you so much. We appreciate what you're going to do. No, he's having to pat them on the back and say, keep your heads up, guys. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Minister, a friend of mine just recently went home to be with the Lord used to say this all the time. A troubled heart is an unbelieving heart. In other words, worry is unbelief. They're worried. They're worried about the things they're hearing. And so he says, let not your heart be troubled. Now he's going to tell them the context. He's already said over and over and over, the father sent him and he's returning to the father. He expects them to know that because he said it numerous times. I'm going back to my father. But they keep saying, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? He said, we well, can't follow me. In other words, you can't follow me to the Father now, but I will come back for you, and you will join me at a certain time. 
So now he says, you believe in God, you believe also in me. Why does he say that? Because they're concerned about him going away. He's saying, you believe God and you've never seen him. You've seen God and he's invisible. Just because you won't be able to see me doesn't mean you can't believe in me still. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If, it not, if not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the church world has turned this into the idea that Jesus is in heaven building houses. Now, bless Jesus' heart, he created the universe in six days. But apparently he forgot how to work fast. Because for 2,000 years he's been in heaven hammering, taking hammers and nails and building mansions and trying to make sure that you've got the sunroom that you've always wanted and, and all this kind of stuff. Folks, how stupid can we be? The word mansions does not mean house. It means abiding place. It's talking about a relationship. In my father's house are many mansions, many abiding places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Well, what about that place, Jesus? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. Notice he does not say that where I am going you can be too. He says that where I am. What's he talking about where he is? Well, look back with me to a couple of scriptures. Look back with me to uh, John chapter 12. Verse 26, Jesus said, he's talking about it, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, then it abides alone. He's talking about his death. Notice he says in verse 26, he says, if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. He's saying the servant will be where he is. Notice also in verse, uh, in chapter 17, verse 24, this is Jesus praying. And he says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Not where I'm going, be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. The abiding place he's talking about is a relationship, not a house. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a relationship for you with my father so that where I am, the father in me, me in him, the Holy Spirit upon me, enabling me to do the works and speak the words of God, that where I am, you may be also. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come to you again. He's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about his resurrection. So he's trying to explain to them don't be sad about this. It'll just be for a little while, and then I'll come again, and then you'll know. And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. He keeps saying, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. You should be glad. I'm going to the Father. Thomas then speaks up. I'm sure that throughout eternity, all these guys wish they had never said a word, kept their thoughts to themselves. But we have an eternal record of it. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? How many times has Jesus said the Father sent him and he's returning? He told the Jews that and they refused to accept that God sent him. He'd do the works and the miracles and say, I'm doing these because God gave me the ability to do it. He sent me to do these things and I'm going back to him. If I came from him, I'm going back to him again. Over and over and over again, yet the disciples didn't get it. And, and I'm, I'm not throwing rocks. Maybe we wouldn't have either. But Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, even though he's clearly said, I'm going to the Father. And how can we know the way? Like, you're going to have to make it on your own? Like, you're going to be following blind? 
Jesus said he'd come back for him. So Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He finally says clearly without equivocation, he says, I'm going to the Father. And that still doesn't do it for him. I'm the only way. Don't worry about following me. I'll come back for you. That's what he did at the resurrection. That's what he did when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost, and they were saved. That's what he's talking about. He's coming back to make the way to the Father for them. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father. Now he's telling them, it was all about you knowing the Father. You knowing me, you seeing me, you experiencing my my, uh, three years of ministry here on the earth. The miracles and all the signs and wonders and all that stuff was about you knowing the Father. Stop and think about that for a second. Every miracle that Jesus ever did was for them and us who believe on him through their words. That's the whole church. Everything about the miracles, the signs and wonders, every display of power was about you knowing God. Yet what's the one thing that the modern day church questions about God? Will he still do the same stuff? We should be ashamed of ourselves. As I said, my friends quote, a troubled heart is an unbelieving heart. Whatever you're troubled about is an area that you're not believing God. Because if you're trusting God, if you're trusting God's word to come to pass in your life, what's there to be bothered about? You can't be worried and be in faith at the same time. It's one or the other. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Now notice the last phrase. And from henceforth, from this time forward, you know him and have seen him. What's he saying? He's saying his death is going to glorify God once again. There's something about his death. He says, keep your eyes open, guys. Because what you see in me in my death will cause you to know God and that God sent me. We're supposed to see something in the death of Jesus. Now, we weren't there physically, obviously. But we've got an even greater testimony than they had being able to see it with their own eyes. Because now we know what all the things meant that they didn't know and couldn't figure out until the Holy Ghost revealed it to them sometime later. But we should have the same understanding when we look at the death of Jesus. But what does the modern day church do? Modern day church looks at Jesus on the cross. We say crucifix and we think that's the death of Jesus. It doesn't have anything to do with the death of Jesus. The Bible says Jesus despised the cross because of the shame involved with it. We don't magnify the cross. We magnify Jesus' death. The cross was just the method whereby Jesus died as a sinner. I didn't say he was a sinner, but he died a sinner's death. He died as a criminal. And he's trying to prepare these guys. He knows the death he's going to die. And he knows that it's not, a, it's not an honorable death. It's not the Romans, you know, thrusting through the sword, uh, you know, a man of dignity and a man of, a, a warrior's death type thing. No, it's a criminal's death. He's going to be hanging between thieves. Why? Because that's the kind of death that was necessary to redeem mankind. Jesus died not for his own doings, but as a substitute for mankind. And all of mankind is a criminal. All of mankind was the enemy of God. And so the criminal's death represented the accurate place for Jesus to make the substitute. So he said, from henceforth, you will know him and have seen him. Philip, bless Philip's heart, he hadn't learned from Thomas' example. 
He speaks up and says, Lord, show us the Father and it'll suffice us. All you have to do is show us the Father and we'll believe. Now, notice what Philip says. Philip says, show us. In other words, he's just the spokesman for the group, he thinks. Show him to us. Show the Father to us. Notice how Jesus answers him. He says, have I been so long time with you? And hast thou, you, not known me, Philip? You're not speaking for the group. Now, he's going to say something to Philip. The, the same thing that he said to the unbelieving Jews. This is a rebuke on Philip's place or Philip's part. He said, have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you really not believe that, Philip? Now, Philip's one of the guys he just washed his feet. Remember, the whole significance of the foot washing thing was to clean him. It's, it's a, a significant of uh, that which took place on the other side of the cross in the resurrection. It signifies the same thing or is an example of the same thing that the Bible talks about, the washing of the water by the word for us. And it's the word that makes us clean. The blood of Jesus makes us righteous. But it's the word of God that makes us clean in life. It's obedience to the word that helps us live a clean and righteous life type or righteous style of living philip's one of these guys and he said i've cleansed you i've made you pure i've made you ready for all the work that i have for you to do philip's going to do lots of miracles later on folks yet he's still questioning because his concern is the same as the other guys he's just vocalizing it philip uh, peter already has and that is how is this we're not going to see you anymore they're still living by their flesh Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Let me uh, remind you of a couple of scriptures we've looked at before. Chapter 5 and verse 19. Jesus answered the Jews. Verse 18 says the Jews sought to kill him because not only he had broken the Sabbath, but also that God was his father. He said God was his father, making himself equal with God. What does Jesus say when the Jews reject him? Jesus says in verse 19, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. But what for whatsoever things, for what things soever he doeth, these also do the Son likewise. For the Son loveth the Father, and showeth him all the things that, the, that himself has done. And he will show him greater works than these, that he may marvel. The same thing is true over in chapter 10. He's saying to the Jews in both cases, he's saying, believe me for the works. I know you don't believe me because of what I'm saying. Believe me for the works. Jesus is talking to the Jews again in verse 25, and he says, I've told you. They can, well, better read verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, how long do you make us to doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I have told you, and you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you're not of my sheep as I said unto you. Do you see the rebuke that he's giving Philip? He said, are you like the Jews that refuse to accept the works? Have I been so long time with you, Philip? Have you seen all the works and the miracles and all the things that I've done? Have you heard all the things that I've said? And really, do you still not believe? Well, then if it takes believing because of the works, then believe me for the works sake. Now is a shift. He makes a shift and he talks to the rest of the disciples. He gets off the rebuke and he goes back to encouraging them. Notice what he says in verse 12. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also and greater works, King James says, but it's not in the original, 
and greater than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now, this is the point where every commentary uh, but one that I know of goes off the rails. Because at this point, they all say, this is Jesus talking specifically to the the disciples. He can't be talking about everybody that believes on his name because we know nobody does the miracles and the healings and the signs and wonders that Jesus does. Uh, Nobody does today what Jesus did in the Bible. And you might as well just close the book and put it down because you'll never understand the rest of it if that's your position. Jesus is saying, if it takes believing me just because of the works, Philip, If that's the only thing you can hang on to, if that's the only thing that you're willing to say, well, yeah, those are miraculous things. Nobody could do that unless God sent them. Then use that. But the point is to believe. It goes back to verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. Whatever it takes for you to believe, believe. Then he says, here's how it's going to work, fellas. He's talking about that place in him. He's talking about that place he's going to prepare for them. Them and us. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, the works that I do shall he do also. And he, and even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. He is saying that you'll have a better place than he has. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or believeth on my name, same difference. The works that I do shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. He's saying, I'm going to make you a better place than I've got myself. How can that be? How's that possible? Well, let's back up a minute and, and, and realize how things work. Jesus was righteous, Right? He was righteous because the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary and he was born of a virgin. He bypassed the sin nature of man that came through the, the, the man and not the woman. And that's why the, that was the significance and the importance of the, of the virgin birth. The Bible says, Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory. That means the power and glory he had with the Father before the world began. We know that Jesus created the universe. We know that he made everything that was made. Nothing is made. There's no visible thing that was ever made that Jesus didn't make. Right? So Jesus comes into the earth righteous. How does he stay righteous? There's only one path to righteousness under the old covenant, and that was to keep the law of Moses. So Jesus is responsible throughout his life, his 33 years of life, roughly. Jesus is responsible for keeping every one of the 630 commandments of God every day. Anywhere along the way, if he had broken just one of the smallest commandments, whatever the smallest commandment is, I have no idea, but whatever you could identify as the smallest commandment, if Jesus broke that one commandment, slipped up anywhere along the way, he would have lost his righteousness. He came into the earth righteous because of his position with God, but he maintained his righteousness through his own works. Right? What's your righteousness based on? Well, Pastor Mike, we're made righteous because we accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives. That's right. Do you lose your righteousness if you slip up? No, you don't. You maintain your righteousness, you know how long? For as long as Jesus is alive. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 7. Maybe this verse of Scripture will be a little bit more clear to us now. Hebrews chapter 7, Paul writing about these things to the Jews. He knew these things because he had the teaching of the rabbis, the priests, the high priests. They should have known too. 
Notice it says, in ver- beginning in verse 22, it says, uh, ah, well, we won't back up that part. Verse 24, it says, but this man, talking about Jesus, because he continueth ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, because it's an unchangeable priesthood, in other words, wherefore he, Jesus, is able to save them to the uttermost. The word uttermost means absolute completion. He is able to save them, meaning anyone, utterly, completely, totally. Why? Those that save them that come to God by him. How come? Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. People read this verse of scripture and they think Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying all day long. About what? If the work is finished and he's seated, if, if, first of all, if the work isn't finished, what is he doing sitting down? The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of the Father, not kneeling by God's right knee. Doesn't say he's kneeling in prayer. It said he's seated at the right hand of the Father because the work's finished. Well, if the work's finished, what is there to pray about? Nothing. The intercession is not prayer. The intercession is his presence. Him being alive is the proof that you are righteous forever. That's why he said, verily I say unto you, verse 12, Luke four, uh, John 14 again, verse 12, verily, verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me. Do you see why he keeps saying, don't be troubled, don't let your heart be troubled, believe in God and believe also in me? Because everything comes down to believing. Everything comes down to believing in Jesus. Everything comes down to keeping your heart in faith, your heart fixed on Jesus. Keep that in mind. It's going to be important. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Notice the next thing he says, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Please notice what God, what glorifies God. Not you suffering. Not you going through some trial or some sickness or some test or some problem. What glorifies God is you making a demand on the name of Jesus for victory. The cross glorified God for one and only one reason, and that is because Jesus defeated it. It wasn't the hanging on the cross that brought God glory. It was the defeat of the cross. It was the defeat of death and sin. It was the defeat and the resur- which was identified in the resurrection that glorified God. That's why we don't have crosses around here. I don't want to see a cross. I don't want to wear a cross. I don't want a cross tattooed on anything. I don't want to like crosses. Why? Because Jesus didn't like crosses. Thank you very much. Had people come in and say, well, Pastor Mike, why don't you have crosses in your church? Well, for one thing, we're not really a church building. Wouldn't hardly fit in a basketball gym. But I wouldn't have a cross no matter what kind of building we had. Now, you want to paint an an open tomb, an empty tomb? I'm all for that. That's fine with me. But the cross is a place of defeat. The reason that the cross glorifies God in any way is because Jesus defeated it. And what brings God glory in every situation is the defeat of the devil's works. God is not glorified when we get beat down by the devil. This idea, well, you gave it your best, son. Forget that. Jesus said, whatever you call for or require in my name, that's what the word ask means. It means to call for or require. He's not talking about prayer. Whatever you call for or require in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In what context is he talking about making a demand on the name of Jesus to do the works that he did and greater works? 
An example of this is Acts chapter 3 in the, where the man at the beautiful gate is healed because Peter and John looked at him and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. They put a demand on the name of Jesus to do the works of Jesus after he was gone. Verse 14, if you shall ask anything, same word ask, call for, require anything in my name, I will do it. <coughs> now in prayer, the Bible talks about in, in John chapter 16, verse 23, we'll see when we get there. It said, uh, in that day, you shall ask me no more questions or ask me nothing. But literally in the Greek, it means no more questions. But whatsoever questions you ask the father in my name, he will give it to you. Here he's saying, you use my name and I'll back it up. He's not talking about prayer. He's saying, you use my name, it's the same as me there doing it. Why? Because I'm going to prepare you a better place. You don't have to keep 630 commandments of God every day. You've got one. Walk in love. And even if you mess up on that, you don't lose your righteousness. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter then he will abide with you forever. Why does he talk about the Holy Spirit being the comforter? Because that's the role that Jesus is playing at that point in time. Jesus is facing death. He's facing the pit of hell for three days, the judgment and the punishment of God, which is unspeakable. Uh, we can't even put that into, into any kind of a context that makes any sense to us. But the worst punishment that, that could ever be imagined, I'm sure it can't be even be imagined, Jesus is facing that and he's having to comfort them. Now, why is that? Let me read you chapter 13, verse 1 again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, out of this world unto the Father. Notice the last phrase. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The reason that Jesus is playing the role of the comforter in this, in this case, even though he's the one that's facing anguish, even though he's the one that's really troubled for a good reason, the reason that Jesus is playing the role of comforter is because he's loving them to the end. And this is the example that John is trying to reveal to us by the Holy Ghost. This is what loving until the end means. Even though Jesus was facing the greatest punishment and anguish imaginable, possible, He's comforting them. And then he says, after I'm gone, I'll make sure you still have comfort. And I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter. Then he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Notice Jesus is not um, just making a good sounding religious phrase. He's speaking of the Holy Ghost in two contexts. He'll dwell with you and shall be in you. He's talking about the Holy Ghost inside, and that's what happens when we get born again. And he's talking about the Holy Ghost with or upon, which happened in Acts chapter 2 when they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in tongues. There's two works of the Holy Ghost. Jesus identifies it very clearly to him right here. He'll dwell with you. For what purpose? To help you do the works. The key is my name, but the Holy Ghost is the power to get it done. But he'll also dwell, dwell in you. They understand the Holy Ghost dwelling with them. Because when the, Jesus has anointed them uh, or, or commissioned them, a better way to say it is, is commissioned, I guess. When he's given them authority over sickness and disease and to cast out devils, they know that there's a supernatural power with them. They know that authority is being backed up with something. Well, what is that? It's the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost came upon them in a measure according to what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do while he was still here on the earth. They had authority over all sickness and disease. 
That's why people would come to them when Jesus wasn't around and they'd get healed. That's why when it didn't work in Luke chapter 9, the disciples said, why, why couldn't we make it work? It always works other times. Why couldn't we make it work? They're used to the Holy Ghost upon them. The, the difference, the new thing is what Jesus puts last and he says, and he'll be in you. We've got it just the way other way around. We're used to the Holy Ghost in us because we're born again. We know that, that God lives on the inside of us. Jesus lives in our heart, whatever phrase you want to use. We know that's the Holy Ghost. We're not used to the Holy Ghost being with us or upon us. They were just the opposite from us. So Jesus says he'll dwell with you and he'll be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. Verse 18, I will come to you. Again, he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about the resurrection. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, but you see me because I live, you shall live also. In other words, he's saying you will see me again. I'm going away and you can't follow me, but I'll come back. After a little while, I'll come back. Now, Luke tells us that after the mountain of transfiguration experience, that Jesus began to plainly teach his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed and raised again the third day. And the Bible's very specific about that. Luke is very specific about that. He said he began to plainly teach them. In other words, no hidden meanings, no parables, no, um, you know, covered up agendas type things. He began to clearly tell them, this is what's going to happen. He expected them to know that because that's when he upbraids them. When he does, is raised from the dead, he upbraids them for their unbelief. They scream. They're like, oh, it's a ghost. He said, what do you mean a ghost? I told you a week ago that I'm going to be raised from the dead after three days. What have you been doing? Uh, hiding. He upbraids them for their hardness of heart, for their unbelief. Well, if he hasn't given something to believe in, he's being unjust in upbraiding them for not believing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. What did, he get, what did he give them to believe in? He told them plainly, here's how it's going to go. Because I live, you shall live also. At that day, you shall know that I'm in the Father and, the he, and you are in me and I'm in you. Please notice verse 20. Then you'll know. You keep asking to know. Show us the Father and we'll know. Tell us where you're going and then we'll know. Here's how you're going to know. You're going to know when that place is accomplished and I come back to receive you into myself. In other words, when I come back so you can be saved too. That's when you'll know because the Holy Ghost will be in you at that point in time and it'll change everything about you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Notice what Jesus is talking about. The disciples get sidetracked. Notice what Jesus is talking about. He talked about the new commandment of love in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He talks about believing in him. And now he says, if you keep or obey my words, that's who I will manifest myself to. Notice what one of the disciples asked. Judas asked him, not, not Judas Iscariot, he's already gone. But the other Judas said, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? You mean you're just going to show yourself to us? That's what manifest means, is to show yourself. So you're just going to show yourself to us, our little group here, and not to the world? I thought the Messiah made Israel, I thought the Messiah was the king of Israel and restored the kingdom to Israel and all this other kind of stuff that's been prophesied. You mean nobody else is going to know but us? Notice what Jesus answers. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. Word keep is the word obey. 
And my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. This word abode in verse 23 is the same word mansions in verse 22. He's talking about dwelling place. He's talking about relationship. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the key to seeing God manifest is to keep his word, be a doer of the word. And folks, that's true in every case. If you want to see God manifest in your body, then keep his word. Obey his word. Be a doer of the word in the, where healing scriptures are concerned. If you want to see God manifest in your finances, be a doer of the word where financial scriptures are concerned. If you want to see God manifest in your home, be a doer of the word where the Bible talks about home and family. It's being a doer of the word that causes you to see God. And that's what the world clamors for. The world says, well, show us, show us. What they're saying is let us see with our eyes. Well, the ones that see with their eyes are the ones that do from their heart, obey from their heart what the word says to do. And that's what Jesus is saying. And he says, that's what love means. Now, you've got people all over the world say, oh, I love God, I love God. And they wouldn't obey the word if their life depended on it. So what they're saying is, I have warm, fuzzy feelings for what I perceive God to be. But that's not love. Jesus tells you what loving God is. Loving God is being a doer of the word. It can't get any simpler than that, folks. That means the word has to take the first place and the first priority in your life then. Because you can't keep what you don't know. You won't act on what you don't exalt. Focus on. Verse 24. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which you hear is not mine. He tells him again. He said this over and over again throughout his ministry. He's saying these are my words. Don't think for a minute these are my words. These words aren't mine. But they're the fathers which sent me. I'm giving you the words of God. What I'm telling you is from heaven. But the comforter, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he'll bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. In other words, he's saying, what are you going to do? I'm reminding you of these things while I'm here. But what are you going to do when I'm gone? Don't worry. The comforter, that's part of his job. He'll remind you of the things that I've said. He'll remind you of the words from heaven that were sent to you that I've already told you. He'll teach you about them, and he'll remind you of these things. What do you think John means when he writes this stuff? Now, 60 years later, 60 years after this event took place, John's probably thinking of all the things the Holy Ghost has taught him. We know that at this point in, his time, in, this point in John's life, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. The reason he's being exiled is because they've tried to kill him, and they can't. They tried to boil him in oil, and he wouldn't die. The love of God sustained this guy. He was so filled with the word of God and the power of God. Every time they, everything they did to try to kill him didn't work. So finally they just sent him away. I wonder if he's thinking of all the things the Holy Ghost has taught him through the years. I wonder if these verses of scripture. It's interesting to me that John is the one that gives us all this detail about the last supper. And the conversation Jesus had. I wonder if that's because the Holy Ghost has brought it to his remembrance many years before. And he's been living on these things. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither yet neither let it be afraid. What's the peace that he's leaving? What is Jesus' peace? The Holy Ghost. It's the comforter. He's saying, I'm giving you the same peace I've been living on. 
the same comforter that has helped me and comforted me and sustained me, I'm leaving him for you. I'll pray the Father and he'll send him to you. I'm not taking him with me. I'm going to leave him here for you. Folks, that's why being filled with the Holy Ghost and praying in other tongues is so beneficial. It brings you into the peace of God like nothing else can. I've had a number of people through the years come to me and say, Pastor Mike, I just can't sleep. My mind just won't quiet down at night so I can sleep. The answer to that is easy. Just get in bed and pray in tongues until you fall asleep. Praying in tongues will quieten your mind down. And sometimes it's the only thing that can. That's the peace that Jesus left us. Yet what does the church do? church argues about whether the Holy Ghost is real, whether speaking in tongues is for today. What are they doing? They're forfeiting the peace of God. Peace I leave unto you. Or peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you that I'm going away and coming again to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Please get this, folks. He finally fesses up. He says, look, if you really loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. Please keep this in mind when Christians die. If we love them, we should be glad that they've gone to the Father. And most of the tears that we cry at funerals are not for the person that's gone. It's for us that's left. What are we going to do without dear so-and-so? But if they know God, we should be glad for them. Yeah, we miss them. We're sad for our own loss. But we don't grieve as others who have no hope. Because we know where they are. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you loved me, you'd be glad for where I'm going. Well, they're not. They keep saying, no, don't go, don't go. What what do you mean you're going? Don't go away. You can't leave us. Jesus, us. It's, It's all about us, you know. You can't leave us. Jesus says, don't worry about it. I'll come back and I'll give you the comforter. You'll have the same peace that I have. But that's still not good enough for them. They're still sitting there wringing their hands saying, but, 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 but what about us? He said, if you love me, you'd rejoice. Because I go unto my father, for my father is greater than I. Well, that's a mouthful. Creator of the universe says the father is greater than him. I'm not even sure what that means. I like to be able to expound on that, but I'm, I'm clueless. Sorry, I'm out. My father is greater than I. I imagine that eternity is going to be filled with uh, enough time for us to figure out how God is greater than Jesus. Verse 29, and now I've told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. He says, I know you're having trouble with this. I know you don't understand. Even though I plainly told you that they're going to crucify me, they're going to betray me. Judas is going to do that already. It's It's at work now. It's in the works. I'm going to be betrayed. Peter, you're going to deny me. Everybody's going to scatter. I'm going to be left alone, die a criminal's death, spend three days in some place that you don't know. He never does tell them about that. I'll spend three days where you can't see me. But after that, I'll be raised again from the dead. And it'll all be great. So he says, and now I've told you before it come to pass, then when it is come to pass, meaning his resurrection, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. But they didn't. That's why he upbraided them through their hardness of heart. He said, the whole reason I'm telling you this is so you'll be ready when I come back. 
Hereafter I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. In other words, he's saying it's already in the works. The betrayal is already in the works. Things are already set in motion. It can't, can't turn back. He hadn't been to the Garden of Gethsemane yet, folks. John didn't tell us about it. He just says that they go to the garden and Judas comes there and betrays him. Doesn't tell us about him praying. Doesn't tell us about the, the drops of blood. Doesn't tell us any of the information that the other gospel writers tell us about. But he said things are in the works. John focuses on what Jesus said, not the details of what happened. Why? Because everything Jesus emphasizes is believing the word. The events are interesting, but the word's what counts. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. In other words, he's saying there's only one thing that keeps me going through with this. That's because I love God. I love my Father. Then he says, arise. Let us go hence. In other words, he says, it's time to go. There's stuff to do. They hadn't yet gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll go there soon. But they get up. They go on their way, perhaps to the Garden. He lets them know clearly there's still work to be done. But the whole thing comes down to, if you believe, then I'll manifest myself to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Whatever's troubling you in life, replace that worry with the word. Because if you want to see God manifest in your life, whatever area it is that you're having problems, it's being a doer of the word and only a doer of the word that will cause it to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to believe it. We thank you, Father, for the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the greater one within us, the one that's equipped us to do the works of Jesus and even greater works because he has gone to the Father. Thank you, Father, for making us righteous. Thank you that we have a better place with you now because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his death, because of his conquest of spiritual death, sin and death. And because of that conquest, we have a better place with you now, Father, than Jesus had when he was here on the earth. Open our eyes to help us to see it. Help us to understand who we are and what belongs to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.